Well, whether you realize it or not, we just got a glimpse into the glories of heaven, where the risen Lord Jesus Christ is powerfully reigning over all things and is being perpetually worshipped by both angels and saints alike. And that chorus of that last song comes straight out of the book of Revelation, would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Now I want to read for us the, the scene on which that song is based. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. The Apostle John writes, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, here it is, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. In order to fully appreciate this majestic moment in heaven, we need to look at the verses leading up to it. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that this is the final book of the Bible. And John, the last remaining apostle or disciple of Christ, was temporarily transported to heaven in the spirit to receive revelation about future events. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1 says that, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne." And here in chapter 5, we are given a preview of a dramatic scene in heaven that will take place at the end of the world. Notice verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this one that John saw lifted up and seated on the throne, he, he saw a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Here we see God holding a sealed scroll which contained the records of the judgments that must fall upon the earth before Jesus can return and set up his kingdom. Again, if you've read the book of Revelation before, you know there are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls all representing the judgments of God. 
And an angel makes an urgent appeal for someone, anyone who is worthy to open that scroll, but no one is found qualified to unroll it and to read it. And so John begins to weep uncontrollably, assuming that there was no angel or man wise enough or strong enough to open the scroll and release God's judgment on the earth and right all the wrongs and vindicate the righteous and punish the wicked, all of which would set the stage for God's eternal reign. One of the elders immediately comforted John with the good news that the lion of the tribe of Judah, one of the classic titles for the Messiah in the scriptures, the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a a reference to Jesus Christ, was able to open the scroll and unleash God's wrath and punishment against mankind's sin. But then, something very strange happens in this vision that John was having. The image of the mighty lamb immediately switches to the image, uh, uh, did I say a mighty lion? That's what I meant to say. This this image of a a mighty lion immediately switches to the image of this meek lamb, literally a, a little pet lamb that appears to have been slaughtered and yet unbelievably was still standing. Notice verse six. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Imagine, if you can, in your mind, this little lamb standing there with its white wool splattered with blood. And the fact that this bloodied lamb was standing means that it was alive. Despite having been gruesomely sacrificed, which is obviously a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even so, because this lamb was slain, that is exactly the reason why he was worthy to open the scroll. Notice verse 7, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls as full of, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Why? For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So as soon as the lamb comes and takes the scroll out of God's right hand, those in his presence fall prostrate before him and begin to worship his worthiness as the one who'd been slaughtered and shed his blood to rescue, to redeem people from all over the globe to serve him and to reign with him forever. 
And then at that moment, all the angels of heaven erupted in praise and joined their voices with the four living creatures and the elders and all of creation in this glorious crescendo of praise to the Lamb. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all the sea and all things in them. I heard saying this to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory, and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, that will be your song that you'll be singing throughout all eternity. So you might as well start practicing just kind of read through Revelation chapter 5 and just, just kind of put that to music in your heart because that's what we're going to be singing forever and ever to the Lamb. Now, if you are a believer, you are a Christian who reads the Bible, you go to church on a regular basis, you know that this is one of the most precious terms or titles used to describe Jesus, the Lamb of God. In fact, Almost all the songs that we sang this morning or were sung for us this morning had that phrase, that expression, the Lamb of God. And so we've, we're very used to that phrase. It's not a, a, a strange or, or, or shocking term to us. But for those of you that might not be Christians, who don't know a whole lot about the Bible, that name, the Lamb of God, might sound a bit odd. I mean, let's face it, except for a few of you 4-H and FFA folks out there, none of us have ever raised a lamb or slaughtered a lamb, or, or, or let alone spend any time around sheep. I mean, lamb isn't even something that many of us eat here in Texas because we've got too many cows to eat, right? But what might seem peculiar at first is really a beautiful, powerful word picture that helps us better understand who Jesus is and why he came to this earth the first time and where he is right now and what he will do when he returns someday. And for us to fully appreciate this concept of Jesus being the Lamb of God, we need to, to trace this profound theme as it weaves its way through both the Old and New Testaments. And so as you know, if you come to Lakeside on a regular basis, we typically just uh, stick with one passage. We read a passage and we stay there the whole time and we just talk about it and explain it and apply it to our lives but this morning, I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to have a little Bible study, all right? So you need to get your Bibles out and get ready to turn some pages with me. And we're going to have this morning more of a thematic message or a topical message regarding this concept of the Lamb of God. And so to begin, I want us to turn back to the first book of the Bible, where the concept of a lamb being sacrificed as a substitute or in the place of someone is initially introduced. And I'm referring to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And here we have the classic account of when God told Abraham to offer up his son Isaac 
as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. You may be aware that Abraham was chosen to be the father of God's people. And God promised that he and his wife Sarah, even though they were beyond the age of childbearing, would have a child in their old age from whom the nation of Israel would come and through whom the entire world would be blessed. That son of promise was named Isaac, and obviously he was very precious to his father Abraham. Well, in order to test Abraham's faith, God commanded Abraham to do the unthinkable, to kill his beloved son and burn his body on an altar as a sacrifice to God. Again, if we read a news story about this today, there would be an outrage. But I appreciated what one man said about this account. God was not endorsing child sacrifice among men. God was foretelling his child sacrifice for men. And as we read this together, you'll understand what that man meant. Genesis chapter 22, verses, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Good question. From this probably uh, young man in his late teens, maybe early 20s by this time, as best we can tell. And uh, he was tracking with his dad. They were about to present a sacrifice on this mountain. And they had everything they needed except for the most important thing, which was the sacrifice. And so Isaac asked his father the obvious question. Hey, we're, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And then listen to Abraham's response, verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Little did Abraham know that his answer to his son Isaac was a prophecy of the death of Christ. This comes into full picture as we continue the story. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
We can only imagine what must have been going through Isaac's mind as he was realizing that his father was using him as the burnt offering, the sacrifice. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Again, precious imagery of Jesus, the one and only son of God. Notice verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Don't miss that imagery, in the place of his son. This is where the idea of substitutionary atonement is first clearly introduced in the Bible. Some would say that God sacrificing an animal in the Garden of Eden to provide clothes for Adam and Eve was a veiled reference to something or someone needing to be sacrificed in the place of another to provide a covering for sin. But this is where it's clearly stated and By substitutionary atonement, what we mean is that Christ served as an acceptable substitute who died as a sacrifice in our place so that our sins could be covered or forgiven. And this event here in Genesis 22 foreshadowed how God would one day offer up his only son as a sacrifice in order to provide a way for us to not have to die and go to hell as punishment for our sin. And notice verse 14, how this story concludes. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. This was the second time in the midst of this inconceivable test of faith that Abraham confidently prophesied that God would provide a lamb who would be offered up in the place of the one doomed to die. And as you may know, approximately 2,000 years later, on that same exact mountain, Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem was eventually to be built, God offered his one and only son as an offering to rescue and reconcile sinful man to himself. And on that cross, God poured out all of his wrath against man's sin on Jesus so that those who are willing to admit their sin and turn from their sin and place their trust in what Jesus did for them on the cross, they can have their sins forgiven and have the hope of heaven.
Let's move now from Genesis 22 to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Because it only gets better as we go through the Old Testament and see all these images and pictures of the Lamb of God. Exodus chapter 12 is the passage where we have the Passover lamb described. The context of this instruction that God gave to Moses was that God's people were in bondage to the Egyptians and after serving as slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, God raised up Moses to deliver his people And when Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses and against the Lord and refused to let the nation of Israel go back to their homeland, God unleashed a series of 10 plagues that were intended to put put on display his power and his glory and bring Pharaoh to his knees. And the last plague was the death of the firstborn, of every living thing, but specifically the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son who would ascend to the throne and continue that pagan dynasty. And like some of the previous plagues, this final plague would show that God made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It's interesting to read through the the, the 10 plagues and to see how God shielded the Israelites from some of them, the gnats, the, the hail, the death of the cattle, But apparently they had to endure the effects of some of the other plagues along with the Egyptians. However, this time, God intended to spare his people from the pain and the heartache of losing their firstborn. But rather than just sparing them from death, God used this opportunity to give them some special instructions to follow in order to be spared. But ultimately, I think to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Notice Exodus chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the years to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire." Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover for it will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then jump ahead to verse 21. This is when Moses called all the elders of the people to pass on these instructions that he had received from the Lord. Verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall make, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the doorposts, two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Now then the sons of Israel went and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. As you see, the entire reason, the whole reason why God instituted this annual Passover celebration was to foreshadow how Christ's blood would be shed for sin so that we would be spared from death and hell. Approximately 1,500 years after the first Passover, on the same exact Day when Jews celebrate Passover, Jesus Christ, the perfect, unblemished Passover lamb, was killed on a cross. And those who believe that the blood that he shed in their place is the only way that they can have their sins forgiven and be made right with God, when God comes to judge the earth, he will see the blood of his son over the doorpost of their lives, as it were. And he'll pass over them. And they'll be preserved from having to experience his wrath against their sin. So the Passover really is the clearest, most compelling sign or preview of the future coming of the Lamb of God. But just in case an annual holiday was not enough to prepare his people for their Messiah... Included in the many sacrifices that God required of them was a daily sacrifice, and the animal of choice to sacrifice was what? A lamb. Every morning, every evening, a lamb was sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem to atone for the sins of the nation. We see this in Exodus 29. Turn there. Exodus chapter 29 Verse 38, 
Exodus chapter 29, verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. You think God was trying to make a point to his people? Verse 39, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hint of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hint of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord and it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And so God wanted a perpetual sacrifice to be made to him, that there was always smoke rising from the temple. There was never a time when there wasn't smoke rising from the temple where some lamb was being sacrificed and burnt to make atonement for the sins of Israel. And again, these daily sacrifices were simply to point people towards the future perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In fact, Jesus' death on the cross occurred at the exact same time that the evening sacrifice was being made in the temple. This was still going on during the time of Christ. Now, as if all this bloody imagery of hundreds and thousands of lambs being slaughtered, not just annually, but daily, wasn't enough to get his point across. God sent prophets to foretell the coming of the Messiah using the imagery of a suffering lamb being led to slaughter whose sacrifice would provide redemption for Israel. Probably the most Famous of these prophecies is Isaiah 53. Turn there. Isaiah 53. Here we have that monumental passage titled The Suffering Servant, talking about the suffering of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, the prophet says this, talking about the Messiah who was to come. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a, what? A lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah's contemporary Jeremiah applied that same imagery to himself and Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 19, but oftentimes the prophet himself represented the Messiah or was a picture or type of the Messiah. And as you know, Jeremiah uh, endured all sorts of suffering. Uh, The people didn't like what he had to say and they uh, continually beat him and threw him in prison and and, uh, had all sorts of, was persecuted in all sorts of ways. But notice in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 19, As he was recounting all the plots against him, Jeremiah said, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. 
and I did not know that they had devised plots against me. Let us destroy the tree with its fruit and let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. Whether he realized it or not, he was speaking of himself, making those comments about himself at the time, but having been inspired to say those things by the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, and preserved here, he was ultimately referring to Christ and the plots that would be made against him to destroy him and cut him off from the land of the living so that his name would not be remembered. He was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Well, all of these references and pictures and images of sacrificial lambs scattered throughout the Old Testament climax in the New Testament in the words of John the Baptist. Turn to John chapter 1. John the Baptist was the man chosen by God to be the forerunner of Christ. His job was to prepare the hearts of God's people to receive the Messiah when he came. And when John the Baptist laid eyes on Jesus for the very first time, what came out of his mouth proved how well he knew the Old Testament, which, which was the sacred scriptures of the Jews in Christ's day. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, don't miss this, behold, who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He repeated himself the next day, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, every Jew who heard John say that should have immediately connected the entire sacrificial system that was established by God in the Old Testament, along with all the pictures and all the prophecies of lands being slaughtered in their place to pay for their sin. John was declaring that Jesus was the perfect and ultimate sacrifice for sin. And notice he says, not just the sin of the Jews... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, that was a curveball that the Jews weren't expecting. All they thought of was the Messiah was coming to save them. They had never conceived of the thought that the Messiah was, had, had far, a far greater goal in mind, and that was not just to save Jews, but to save sinners, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And so John proclaims here that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And not just the sin of the Jews, but the sin of anyone in the world who embraces him as their Lord and Savior. It's interesting, the followers of Christ, the apostles of Christ, pick up this theme of the Lamb of God in their writings in the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 
Paul was confronting the church in Corinth for allowing immorality to continue in their midst. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, do you, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, also has been sacrificed. So in case you missed it, in case you were like, well, I'm not sure, that might be a little bit of a stretch, the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, back in Egypt, and then Jesus. No, Paul said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for our sin. And then look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And here the apostle Peter writing to believers who were scattered all over Asia Minor at the time, desperately in need of assurance of their salvation, desperately needing hope because they were facing all sorts of trials and tribulations and they were being persecuted on all sides. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, this is what Peter says to encourage them and give them the assurance of their salvation, and the hope of heaven. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a, what? Lamb, unblemished and spotless. And specifically, I'm referring to the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter says, you have been redeemed, not with gold, not with silver, but with blood. To be redeemed means that a price was paid to buy your freedom, the freedom of those who were in bondage to sin and under the curse of the law, and the price paid to a holy God with the shed blood of his own son, Jesus, who was sent into the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, John three sixteen. Interesting phrase there. It says, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, in eternity past, long before Adam and Eve ever sinned, God the Father designed a plan to save sinners through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Revelation 13, 8 means when it says Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth. And at the appointed time, the Son left the glories of heaven and came to earth and fulfilled the Father's plan of salvation by serving as a sacrificial lamb who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And as Peter mentions here, three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead 
to confirm that his wrath had been satisfied, that he accepted Jesus' death as payment for sin and forgiveness and eternal life had been secured for all those who would repent and believe in Jesus. We know that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended back to heaven and God restored him to the glory that he had with him before the world began. And ever since Christ's glorious return to heaven, based on how he's described in the book of Revelation, where this whole study started this morning, he will be forever known and worshiped as the lamb who was slain. Jesus is referred to the lamb 30 times in the book of Revelation. We don't have time to look at all of these references. I wish we did, but just consider a few things that Jesus is doing and will do in the future as the risen, reigning Lamb of God. He will unleash God's wrath upon the earth. He will be worshiped for all eternity. He will shepherd, guide, and comfort his people. He will help his followers overcome Satan. He will conquer his enemies at the battle of Armageddon. He will determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. He will preside over his own marriage supper of the Lamb. And finally, and most importantly, he will be the focal point of the new heaven and the new earth. In fact, Revelation says that there will be no need for light, no need for electricity, because the Lamb of God will be the light that lights up heaven. In this unique designation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, slain but standing, two ideas collide. That of vicarious suffering and victorious reigning. As I was doing some research for this morning, I found a it's interesting that one of the common pictures of Christ throughout church history was a picture of a lamb, a little lamb, standing with blood all over his wool. But that little lamb was holding a banner, holding a flag. Again, representing his vicarious suffering that he suffered and died in our place but also representing his victorious reigning so that we could triumph over sin in this world and reign with him in the world to come. Worthy is the risen lamb who is our living hope. Let's pray. I want to take a moment as you just have your eyes closed and your head bowed. I just want to ask you a question before I close in prayer. Do you have the hope of knowing your sins are forgiven and that you will spend eternity in heaven? 
You can if you humbly come to the risen, reigning Lamb of God and sincerely call out to Him and ask Him to rescue and redeem you from your sin. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. If you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, maybe you just came here this morning based on the invitation of a family member or friend, or, or maybe you come to this church every Sunday, but you know that you're not truly saved or you don't have the hope of heaven. I want to encourage you just to pray this prayer to the Lamb of God. Just quietly, silently in your own heart, pray this. Jesus, I believe you're the Lamb of God who came to take away my sin through your sacrificial death on the cross. And Jesus, I believe that you not only died, but you rose from the grave three days later. Thank you for living and dying in my place and paying the penalty for my sin. And today I want to give up my life of sin and commit the rest of my life to follow and obey you as my Lord and Savior. And Jesus, one more thing. I look forward to serving you and reigning with you forever and ever. Amen. If you prayed that prayer just now, I would encourage you to tell someone about that. And I'd also encourage you to start reading the Bible and praying every day and start attending a church where you can learn more about the Bible and grow in your relationship with Christ. Heavenly Father, we are thrilled to have been here this morning to celebrate the risen Lamb. Thank you for this beautiful imagery that you have preserved for us in your word. There's no possible way we could miss this theme. And I pray that as your word was explained this morning, that hearts of those here burned within them, confirming the truth that they already believe or stimulating faith in these things that they never had before. We worship and adore you and we thank you that we can have hope even as wretched sinners as we are. We can have the hope that our sins are forgiven and that we will spend eternity with you in heaven someday. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.